welcome. What a sweet time of worship. I loved every one of those songs tonight. It was just awesome. We are continuing our study through the book of Joshua. We are looking at chapters 2 and chapters 3 of Joshua. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will get one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. There's a couple of hands right there. Stephen, see him? Okay. <laughs> right, right there. We'll point him out to you. <laughs> I don't like you. (laughs) Love you, but I don't like no. (laughs) Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 3 this evening. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the sweet time of worship that we've had, Lord. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, that you give to us to be able to gather together in a place uh, secure, uh, Lord, a place where we don't have to fear government officials coming in and stopping us or, or fear being attacked, Lord, from, from other uh, terrorist groups, Lord. We, we, we are free to worship you here and free to study your word. And, Lord, we never want to take that for granted. We thank you for your love and grace towards us. We pray, Father, as we look to your word this evening, Lord, that we would get information, but more so application into our lives that would change us and draw us closer into our relationship with you. So, God, again, we thank you for this time we committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when Moses passed on the baton of leadership to Joshua before he died, Israel was at the end of the, the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. I don't know if you know this or not, Joshua was almost 90 years old when he became Israel's leader. We know that he died at 110 years old. We looked at that on Sunday morning. Uh, we last left, uh, left off with Joshua and the children of Israel camped out on the east side of the Jordan River. And we read how God spoke to Joshua. And the instructions were clear. Joshua was to, was to assume immediate command of all the people, lead them across the Jordan into the promised land. And I love the words of encouragement the Lord gave Joshua in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, Joshua had a choice. Do I by faith believe what God has said and move forward in faith? Or do I back off and say, Lord, I'm not the guy. Someone else, let them do it. Uh, he had a choice. Now, what is faith? Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think for many new believers, they they have a problem. They really don't understand faith. They think, well, how can I step out in something or believe in something that I'm not really sure of? If you take notes, you might want to jot down in your margin above Joshua chapter 2, write Hebrews 11 verse 1. It's a verse we all know, but because this is something that Joshua exercises quite well in our text this evening, I want to point it out. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So I believe that this is one of those verses that leave the non-spiritual-minded person still guessing and still wondering, what is this faith thing? What is the substance not seen? What is it? Well, it's an action that takes place in our lives when we truly believe what God has said. When Hebrews 1, verse 1 is misinterpreted, it only happens in the heart, 11, 1 is misinterpreted, it only happens in the heart of the person who looks at it and says, oh, come on can't have that kind of faith. That's like blind faith. How can I believe in something I cannot see? That's not the case. There's not a single one of us in this room this evening who is being asked by God from Hebrews 11 to step out in blind faith. 
Why is that? Because we have the Word of God. That's why we're here tonight to study the Word of God. That takes the blinders off of our faith. God has already said in His Word specific instructions that He's given to us, certain promises that are there for us to possess. So we just step forward in those things and do what God has called us to do. So there's really no such thing as blind faith in Christianity because God's Word speaks facts to our hearts. Blind faith is actually factual faith. It's faith that rests in the fact of God. It's historical, it's archaeological, it's scientific fact that's rooted in our system as we walk in this daily life. So when God says something, we take His Word at it and we move forward. God gives us specific instructions in His Word and we have to put our faith into action as we obediently step out in faith to what God has showed us to do. This is what Joshua is about to do. Really take a step of faith, really a leap of faith, if you would, and it's not blind faith. Joshua is going to take God at his word and take this great step of faith as he leads the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, last week we looked at the verses of confirmation that the Lord gave Joshua in order to have this complete assurance of what God was asking him to do, that it wasn't some sort of blind faith, but that God has already given to them. Turn back a page to chapter 1. And there's six verses of, of assurance that God gives there to Joshua. Verse 1, God said to Joshua, Arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all of the people to the land which I'm giving to them, the children of Israel. Verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6, Be strong and of good courage, for this people you shall divide as an inheritance. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which my, Moses, my servant, commanded you. And verse 9, which I love. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, you really can't have blind faith when God's word is so clear. Joshua has got God's word on it. He just now needs to act in obedience. Listen, God tells us these very same things when it comes to our spiritual walk and the battles we face every day. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. I'll not leave you. I'll not forsake you. We just need to act and walk in obedience to what the Lord says. Romans 8.31 is a perfect cross-reference to these verses. Paul writes, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, the New Testament makes it clear that Joshua is a type of Christ. In fact, the name Jesus in the Greek is equivalent to Joshua, and Joshua in Hebrew is equivalent to Jesus. We looked at this last time. Both means God's salvation or Jehovah's salvation. So just as Joshua conquered earthly foes, so too Christ has defeated every enemy through his death and resurrection. And just as Joshua will lead the children of Israel into rest and victory, so too Christ leads us into spiritual rest and victory. One more thing before we get to chapter 2. There are those who like to, to come up against the inspiration of the Bible because they bring up passages in Joshua that tell of war and slaughter and, and killing. And they say things, well, how can a God of love do this or allow this bloodshed to happen? But what we need to keep in mind as we're studying this book is that God has given these heathen nations uh, that will be conquered hundreds of years to repent. Hundreds of years to turn from their, their filthy ways. 
If you want to read, want to know what they were doing, then go ahead and read later on, not right now, because we're going to get to Joshua chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 18. There you'll find a whole list of these horrible things that these nations had been doing. And it's no wonder when you read that, you go, yeah, judgment needs to come. And, and there, some of the stuff they were doing was actually a part of their heathen religious worship. So it, it, was only, it was immediately even religious. As well as any sinner in the nation could have been saved by faith, such as Rahab, as we'll read in a moment, as well as there was adequate warning set, set ahead. But see, sometimes God uses war to, to chasten and even destroy nations that forget Him. God had these nations destroyed to punish them for their sins in the same way a doctor disinfects his instruments, you know, in order to kill the germs to protect his people, you know, for, for their evil ways. So, you know, as God is a moral judge. He has the right to deal with people any way he, he wants to, anytime he wants, anytime he deems appropriate for his purposes. Now, the question is not why God chose to destroy these sinners, is, is, is more why he let them live so long. That's more the question is, and, and, and not destroy them sooner than they are. It's only by his amazing grace that allows any sinner to draw one more breath of life and have one more chance to repent. Well, that finally brings us to verse 1 of chapter 2. We're going to see how one woman had one chance left in her life to receive the grace of God in her life. A look at verses, verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, Joshua... The son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. So Joshua sends out two unnamed spies to view the land, especially Jericho. Now remember, 40 years prior to this, 12 spies had been sent in. Out of the 12, Caleb and Joshua came back and said, Amen, let's go for it. Let's claim this, this for, for our land, for our own that God has given to us. They, by faith, they were ready to go for it. But the other ten, and they came back in fear. Oh, no. Numbers 13, 31 says, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Congregation freaked out. God judged them for it. I mean, that was the reason they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, now, why in the world, then, would Joshua send more spies in? You think, man, that wasn't a good idea back then. Why are you doing it now? Well, two things that I, I want to point out that were different here. The first spy mission was decided corporately by the people being led, whereas the second mission was decided privately by the leader. And number two, the first spies were sent in public knowledge. The second were sent in secretly. And the way I see it is that the first group was, was sent in uh, with the motivation of, should we enter into this land? The second group was sent in with the motivation of, of how are we going to enter in this land? There is find out how we're going to do it, not should we do it. Or to put it even clearer, the first group moved out in unbelief, and the second group moved forward in faith. Well, we read of these two spies who stay in the house owned by a woman named Rahab, or as we read here, a harlot named Rahab. Now, we know that she, just, she wasn't running a bed and breakfast, um, because the, the New Testament also calls her Rahab the harlot. And the Greek word for harlot means prostitute. Now you may ask, well, why would the spies stay in a house of prostitution? Well, for one, it was probably the only place that they felt that they wouldn't be recognized and captured. A place of, of anonymity. But, but see, number two, God had a bigger plan. This is where God had them because God was going to use them to reach this woman and her family with salvation. See, these two men that Joshua sends in, they're thinking they're going in as spies, as spies, but in reality, they're going in as, as witnesses. Same thing is true for me and you. 
We think we're school teachers. We think we're insurance salesmen. We think we're, we're hairstylists, but we're not. We're actually undercover agents for the kingdom of God. And God brings people into our path so we can share with them how to be saved. So, these spies came to Rahab's house and lodged there. Look at verse 2. We read, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords and the Chevys. And as soon as those... <laughs> Sorry, I had to add that one there. That's not the fords. As soon as those pursued them had gone out, then they shut the gate. So even though they tried, the two spies tried not to be noticed, the king of Jericho found out the Israelite spies had, had entered her house. And when he demanded them to be turned over, she hid them and claimed that they had come and gone. And she says to them, well, if you hurry, you can still catch them. They want that away, you know. And, and then, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to go. But here's the thing. Rahab lied. She lied. I found a list of famous American fibs. A few of them. The check is in the mail. I'll start my diet tomorrow. We service what we sell. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. No offended, Kevin. Um, <laughs> money cheerfully refunded. One size fits all. How about this one? This hurts me more than it hurts you. Yeah, right. Your table will be ready in a few minutes. Oh, that's an open wide. It won't hurt a bit. <laughs> right. I bring this up because... When we read that Rahab lied, people will say, well, it's okay to lie in certain circumstances. Rahab did it. Or the other way around, they'll say, people read this, well, I have a big problem with the fact that Rahab lied. Uh, some people say that, that God is condoning her lie. But it's quite the opposite. The Bible never says uh, what a righteous thing it was for her to lie like that. Some other people will say, well, Rahab lied, so lying to further the kingdom of God must be okay. Yeah, that's it. I don't think you can prove that point from Scripture. If you can, then you're a bigger liar than Rahab was. But yes, Abraham lied to stay alive when he said his wife was his sister. Jacob lied to his father saying he was Esau in order to receive the blessing. And yes, God was faithful to these men even after their lies, but he never condones lying. In fact, Scripture says very clearly, Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 9, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will perish. Proverbs 19.22, it is better to be a poor man than a liar. Liars always sin. Lying is always sin. Now, it's not the unforgivable sin. I mean, before we condemn Rahab, we have to remember that she was not a believer at this point. How do you expect a non-believer to act? Oh, a non-believer lied. What do you expect? You know, she was saving her own skin. But more than that, she had a bigger reason for lying. Let's read about it in her own words. Look at verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, 
And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So we see the Israelites had a reputation and a reputation preceded them. Word had come to the land of Canaan about the parting of the Red Sea, about the defeat in Sion and Og and the king of the Amorites. Fear had struck the Canaanites, just as, as God had promised in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, the Lord says this, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. That's what Rahab said has happened. God has given the enemies of the Lord the spirit of fear. Now, in direct opposition to their fear, we as believers, we have the opposite, you know, the, of, the, of that. I mean, Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So again, wherever God leads, we can step out in faith and go in and accomplish what He has called us to do, not in fear, but in confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who has given us the, the, the power of the sound mind and love. But we see here the Canaanites, they were in fear, they were dreading the Israelites, but Rahab understood that, and it was the Lord who had done, that, that was the Lord who had done these things. In fact, this is where Rahab actually makes her profession of faith. She had faith in God as evidenced by her belief that God had given the land to, to the Israelites. She said in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. So she knew the facts about God as evidenced by her knowledge of what, what God had done for his people. Then she said in verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water and so forth. And then in verse 11, she feared God as evidence of her condition of her heart. She says, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted because of the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above all and earth beneath. So she had faith in God, faith in what God has done for his people, and she had the fear of the Lord. Isn't that what, what, what God looks for in person coming to Christ? She also knew that the, the God of the Israelites was the one true God of heaven and earth, and that God was about to bring judgment upon them. And so she's asking for salvation from the coming judgment. Or, or simply put, she's saying, Lord, I believe, save me. It's right here where Rahab becomes an example of a woman of faith. The New Testament speaks of her in this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. James also uses her as an illustration for a woman of faith when he says in James 2.25, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So a Canaanite prostitute becomes a woman of faith praised in the New Testament. But that's not all, as the late night commercials would say. Rahab later on married one of the princes of Judah and gave birth to a man named Boaz, a major player in the book of Ruth. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. So Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David. That makes her the ancestor of Jesus Christ, which Matthew's Gospel shows us in, in the first chapter of his Gospel. 
You know what that tells me? That tells me that whether you've been a prostitute, a drug addict, a pornographer, a drug dealer, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become a part of his family. Your sin's forgiven. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. Hebrews 2.11 says this in the New Living Translation. So now Jesus and the one he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. I love that. What a gracious God we serve. Well, now, in verses 14 through 21, we come to the famous scarlet cord. Look at verse 14. So the men answered, Our life for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless, when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Why this strange symbol of a scarlet cord? Well, the actually, it's actually a huge symbol. The, the, the meaning of the scarlet cord is threaded throughout Scripture. Get it? Threaded cord. Anyway. It goes all the way back to Genesis. You know, I think when, when Tamar was giving birth to twins back in Genesis 38, we read there that, verse 28, Moreover, it took place when she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first, but it came out after, about as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. So here, here was the, the, the scarlet thread marking the firstborn. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was Mary's firstborn son, that he was the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn of all creation, firstborn among the dead. Leviticus 14, the scarlet, then, then Leviticus 14, the scarlet string shows up again. Uh, in verses 2 through 7, when there's a cleansing of a leper is described, what needs to be done. Let me read Leviticus 14, verse 2 through 7. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now it shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. And you go, okay, what's that all about? Well, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. There's two birds involved. In Scripture, birds are often referred to as the, as the birds of the heavens. They both represent Jesus Christ, who came from heaven. One bird was placed in an earthen vessel. Well, Jesus, too, when he came to earth, he was placed himself in an earthen vessel, the body of man. The bird was slain at the priest's hands, just as Jesus was. And the blood of the bird was mixed with water inside the vessel, just like what happened with Jesus' uh, 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 
what happened to Jesus' earthen vessel. The live bird was fastened to the wood with a scarlet string, just as Jesus was fastened to the wood of the cross, covered in blood. Hyssop was also present, just as it was at the cross. The leper was sprinkled seven times, representing his complete cleansing by the blood. And then the live bird was released again to the heavens, just as Jesus rose from the dead and, and returned to heaven. See, Leviticus 14. And the scarlet string represents the blood of Christ, which cleanses all sinners, all of us lepers completely. And so we see the picture, we see this. Uh, it really is, uh, you know, I think there's a book out called The Scarlet Thread, and it talks about all the places Jesus goes throughout the whole, whole Old Testament. Here we have two spies here uh, in Joshua 2 tell Rahab that she will be saved from the coming judgment of God upon sinful people by this scarlet cord. And then they tell her, anyone who ventures outside the covering of the scarlet cord would die in the judgment. Same is true with the blood of Jesus Christ. It saves us from judgment, and anyone who refuses to be protected by it will perish. See, it's not too much for us to imagine how quickly Rahab put that scarlet cord into the window. She probably ran to the door and ran out to her family. Scarlet cord, you betcha. She threw it out the window, and then, and then she went and got all her family. She said, man, you've got to get in here. You've you got to be saved. I think in the same way, we come to faith in Christ. First thing we want to do, man, we want our family saved. Man, you've got to hear the good news. We're excited about what God has done. I also like that the door of her house would become the door to safety for all those who entered into it. Think about Noah. There's safety for those who entered into the door of the ark. In Egypt, there was freedom from judgment for those gathered inside the door sprinkled with the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. Saved from eternal judgment depends on entering the right door. I read a story from way back about George Whitfield, who was one of those great preachers during the Great Awakening. At one time he heard a couple of guys, young guys, talking sarcastically before he was about to speak. You know, kind of, they'd heard him say some things in the past, so, so they said, well, well, what if the door is shut? Another will be open. Well, during the service later on, Whitfield began to preach, and he said, it is possible that there may be someone here who is careless and trifling and says, so what if the door is shut? Another will be open. And uh, two, the two young guys looked at each other in alarm, but then Woodford went on. Yes, another door will open. It'll be the door to the bottomless pit, the door to hell. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? Busted. I mean, here's the deal. Rahab had the opportunity to do what the right thing, to open the right door, to make the right decision, and she did. And for it, she's remembered in the hall of faith as a woman of faith. Well, then the spies leave. Look at verse 22 we read. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain and crossed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. From the day the scarlet cord, which represents the blood of Christ, was hung, it was three days before the spies came back from hiding and told everyone what the Lord had done and, and how he was victorious. Sounds an awful lot like the, the gospel accounts, doesn't it? Now chapter 3. So, verse 1. Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that, they off, that the officers went through the camp. Remember back in verse 11 of chapter 1, God told uh, um, 
God told the people of Israel to wait three days at the shores of the Jordan River. Now, at that time, the people saw the, the, the rushing river swollen by the spring rains lying right in front of them. And surely they must have, have thought to themselves, how are we ever going to cross this river? I mean, it's one thing that, that for a few spies to make their way across it here. But here in chapter 3, we're talking about a nation of millions with all their possessions. How will they make it? At, at a moment like that, all the wonderful talk about living in the promised land can sound pretty shallow. I mean, there's this seemingly huge obstacle right before them blocking the way. How will God do this one? Well, God answers that for them. The ark of God will lead the way. Look at verse 3. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Now, remember the children of Israel, it was no longer the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by the day. Now they had a new direction. They were to follow the Ark of the Covenant. Now look at verses 4 through 8. He says, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So God is about to do something entirely new, so new commands were needed. New directions must be received. Yes, they would cross over into the promised land, but they had to receive God's directive word to do it. We read in verse 3 that when you see, then you shall. We read in verse 5, sanctify yourselves. We read in verse 6, take up, the Lord says. In verse 8, we read, when you have come. See, they couldn't rely on the commands of, of yesterday. These were things for the future. This was a new chapter in their life, and a new word was needed. To these children of Israel, they were strangers in an unfamiliar territory. They've never been there before. And so they're told to leave a distance between themselves and the ark, some, about a thousand yards behind the ark. Now, I think that was for two reasons. Number one, just in respect to the ark of the covenant. But also, number two, is make sure that, that everyone was in clear view of the ark. If it was out in front of them with, by a thousand yards, then, then the millions of people behind them, they could see it out in front of them. Now, the ark, of course, was where God would manifest himself here on the earth. Inside was the, the bread of life, the, the manna, jar of manna. Inside was the, the word of God, the, the Ten Commandments. It's a picture of Jesus Christ and how we should follow the Lord every step of the ways he leads us. We're told in First Peter 2.21 that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And yeah, there's a, a gap between the days that he walked the earth and, and the days we do, but he's still clearly visible and his path is well marked. Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. The way we should walk, the way we should follow Jesus is very clear. But, but I love that verse 5, Joshua says to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What was Joshua asking for? He was asking for a rededication to holy living. Sanctify or set yourself apart. God was promised that he was going to do great things, that Israel, you know, would be wonders among them, but it was a conditional promise. 
The promise was that God would, would, would demonstrate miraculous power, but it was contingent on the people's willingness to sanctify themselves. You know, the Old Testament sanctification usually meant, usually was tied to ritual cleansing, uh, cleansing, and God gave very specific instructions on ceremonial cleansing. The experience of Israel at Mount Sinai was the pattern, and then sanctify yourself meant that everyone was to, to bathe and to change your clothes. You know, when you have a, a special event coming up and you want to make sure that everything is just right, you know, you want to make sure you're clean and stuff. I remember being in high school and, you know, going to the high school dances, I would wash and wax my car, you know, and vacuum it and then revacuum it some more and sprinkle a little brute cologne on, you know, in the car and on me and, you know, or aqua velvet. We talked about that, you know, get, get that cologne out and then go spend an extra hour in the shower getting all ready. Oh, you wanted to be ready because it was a special moment. Well, the Bible, this image of washing one's body and putting on fresh clothes symbolized a new beginning with the Lord. See, sin is a picture of defilement. God has to cleanse us before we can truly follow him. When Jacob made a new beginning with the Lord and returned to Bethel, he and his entire family washed themselves and changed their garments. I think of David, after he confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he bathed, changed his clothes, and then worshipped God. This picture is carried over into the New Testament as well. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10 speaks of the necessity of being forgiven of sin, of putting away the old man, the old patterns of behavior and attitudes and allowing those things to be washed away by the blood of Christ. Then, then there's the wonderful invitation to put on uh, the new person, to close ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus. See, whenever we have the opportunity to face new opportunities, God's voice calls us to, to sanctify ourselves. God calls his people to holiness, to, to set yourselves apart, a life of purity, separation from sin. Now this also means opening up ourselves up to the, to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Allowing God to show us, okay, Lord, I need to get that work out of my life. It means a confession of sin, repentance, and experiencing forgiveness. It's at that point that, that then God's Holy Spirit enables us to be used by God. Sadly, I think there are many uh, Christians today that lack power, they lack joy, they lack fullness in their life because they're living in sin and living in compromise. They need to be emptied of their sin, emptied of compromise, emptied of the flesh and living for self and, and so they can be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God. I'm convinced today that the problem with many people is that they're seeking to be filled before they're emptied. They, they, they want to move into ministry. They, they, they want to be used by the Lord. They want the power. They want the fullness. They want to be blessed, but they refuse to be emptied. Listen, the need isn't to get pumped up or psyched up or hyped up. It's not trying to get yourself together. It's to empty ourselves, all of our crutches, so we can be filled with the life of God, to humble ourselves, confess sin, and allow God to do that work of filling us again and again and again and using us. So, verse 9, let's finish up the chapter. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. I didn't say termites. Okay, I did. Verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, 
And the feet of the priest who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of Arab, Arabah, the salt sea, fell and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So the priests were commanded to walk towards the river, carrying the ark. Priests began their procession with the Ark of the Covenant some 1,000 yards in front of the people. The priests came and walked right into the river that, that looked like it wasn't going anywhere. I mean, who knows how long the priests stood before they got to the river. Okay, we're going to go, we're going to go, and they, they get right to the river and going, okay, do we go or do we don't go? I, I know we got to go, and they're watching the water go back and forth. It might have only been a moment, but I bet to them it probably seemed like a really long time. Because situations like that, they, they seem like a long time. You know, we usually want the river dry before we even make a step. But God was truly calling Israel to take that step of faith. Joshua reminds us in verse 15, For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. So this wasn't, you know, at the lowest point of the Jordan River. This was, it was overflowing. It was rushing. Because of the spring rains at this time of early harvest, the river was swollen, overflowing its banks. Yet as soon as their feet touched the water, the Jordan stopped flowing. I love that 40 years earlier, the Red Sea just parted before they got into it. But here, they had to get their feet wet first. Sometimes God does that in our lives. Sometimes He opens up the doors. Clearly, we can walk right through. And other times, He just wants us to get our feet wet first before He opens that door wider. I mean, isn't that just like God? He he wants to do some amazing things tomorrow. But before He does, we have to trust Him today. We're required to, to demonstrate our faith. You see, without risk, there is no faith. For faith to be faith, we have to venture out beyond our own abilities and resources. We have to take that step before God acts. Now, often God provides no solution to our problems until we trust Him and we move ahead. Now, He's waiting. You know, He wants to supernaturally intervene in the difficulties and the challenges that we face in our everyday lives. But He can't until we first demonstrate faith by walking forward on that path of obedience. Now, what's amazing to me is that when we see here is that, that the way upstream at the city of Adam besides Zaretan, God had already acted. He had already prepared for what was about to happen. God did his part because he said that he would. He stopped up the river. He said, he said he would take care of them. He did. Deuteronomy 31.8 says this, And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So they got their feet wet. The water miraculously gathered up and would not flow. The priest stood in the middle of the dry ground with the ark until everyone had crossed over, some two million strong. It was awesome. But you know what? It also meant that the children of Israel, they were going for it. No turning back now. No turning back. You see, in crossing the Jordan with some 200 million strong, God was glorified, Joshua was exalted, Israel was encouraged, and the Canaanites were terrorized. But... Israel was now irrevocably committed to the struggle against the armies, the chariots, and the fortified cities. I mean, they they were going to be going to war. But it was also meant that they were committed to now walk by faith in the living God and turn away from walking in the flesh as they often experience in the wilderness. So what does that mean for us? Well, a symbolic crossing over to the Jordan really means passing from one level of the Christian life 
to another. It's a picture of entering into spiritual warfare to claim what God has already promised. It should mean a, a life ending of living in the flesh and the beginning, beginning of a life living in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience to God's word. The Jordan was the obstacle that kept Israel from the promised land. It was the river of impossibility. And we face obstacles that keep us from enjoying this, this life of faith, uh, life of faith, uh, but uh, obedience and victory. But you see, even in the obstacles, uh, although they appear as intimidating as they are, this rushing Jordan River, we must never lose fact of the sight that, that God is the one who will take us through. God will get us through no matter, what, no matter what it is. The Lord, He's the one who goes before you. He'll be with you. He'll not leave you nor forsake you. Do not, be, do not fear nor be dismayed. I want to close with this promise. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you go through the deep waters in great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So if you have any rivers in your life that are looking uncrossable or any mountains that may be standing in your way, remember that God specializes in doing the impossible and doing what no one else can do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for these encouraging words that we see, Lord. The book of Joshua is a powerful book, Lord, because we see how you move in powerful ways. But it's related to faith. Lord, we pray increase our faith. Increase our faith, Lord. Lord, we pray that as we face the struggles and the trials of every day, Lord, that we would not get our eyes off of you, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you just like the children of Israel kept their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. Lord, we would not uh, turn our eyes to the left and to the right, but we would keep our eyes focused on you. Lord, we pray that when those times come where you call us to get our feet wet, Lord, that we wouldn't back off, that we wouldn't shirk away, Lord, that we would take that step of faith. Lord, knowing that you've called us to do this, Lord, and you'll see us through. Thank you for your love, your grace, your continued direction in our lives, Lord God. Thank you for the mercy that you give us, Lord, each and every day, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we, we go our way this evening, Lord, that our, our hearts would stay focused on you, Lord, that you'd bless our, our uh, fellowship time afterwards, Lord God. Tomorrow, Lord, you'd give us just a great day at work or school, wherever we may be, that we might glorify you. Lord, that we would be, uh, Lord, uh, those witnesses. We think we may be going in to do our jobs, Lord, but you would, you would bring divine appointments tomorrow that we might share the love of Jesus Christ with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.